Before I read for you the New Testament lesson for this morning, I'd like to take just a moment of personal privilege to say what a delight and honor it is to be here celebrating with you this day, not only this fine Lord's Day, worshiping in this beautiful sanctuary, but also celebrating God's love with the formation of the newest Christian in Phoebe Louise. It is a great joy to be here. Also, I want to say, take good care of Matt and Emma. We have shared them with you from Mid-Kentucky Presbytery. We only share our very best with others, so take good care of them. Uh, uh, and um, the other thing I'll say is this is my first time to Detroit ever, so I can uh, witness for uh, everyone that I meet from here henceforth and forevermore that it's always bright and sunny in Detroit. It never snows in Detroit, and it is full of wonderful, inviting, welcoming people, uh, and that is a great blessing. So thank you for uh, having me here today. Our New Testament reading for this morning comes to us from the book of Romans, chapter 8, verses 28 through 39. Let us listen for God's word. In all things, God works together for good, for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn within a large family. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not withhold his own son, but gave him up for all of us, will he not with him also give us everything else? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? It is Christ Jesus who died, yes, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, here ends our scripture readings for us for this morning. May God add a blessing to our hearing and understanding of God's holy word. Well, today we celebrate the baptism of Phoebe Nichol. We celebrate the birth of the world's newest Christian, 
the beginnings of the life of faith, and the fact that infants with their beautifully little chubby cheeks and their perfectly formed miniature fingers and toes and all those gurglings and coos are absolutely irresistible. You just can't help but love them. But as a father of a now 22 and 24-year-old, I'm reminded that all of that irresistibleness grows up. And it grows up fast. And from time to time, it doesn't seem so charming. And although Emma and Matt, you are probably at least a few years away from this experience in your household, it's sure to come. The upper lip will tremble, the eyes will grow soft and wet, and the adorable voice of Naomi or Phoebe will break forth into a wail that will shatter glass and will rip the sinews of your heart at the same time. But do you still love me? This plaintive cry has been heard and is heard, and will be heard at one time or another between parent and child from time immemorial. But do you still love me? And the setup is always the same. It's some takeoff or riff on this situation. The child, son or daughter, will have done something that isn't right. It doesn't really matter what. But whatever it is, the parental response will be the same and often involves middle names as well. A stern, disapproving mommy or daddy voice, a stern, disapproving mommy or daddy voice that will not only cause the child to cease and desist, but will cause the child to question the basis of the relationship in the first place. But do you still love me? And out of fear that somehow what the child has done or failed to do has broken the loving relationship between parent and child, comes the universal, reassuring parental reply. With all the loving tenderness that a parent can muster comes the automatic response. Yes, honey. You know that mommy or daddy still loves you. You know that mommy or daddy will always love you, no matter what. You can count on that. Well, these words are spoken automatically and reassuringly, first, because they're true, and second, because no parent can bear to let their children think, even for a second, that they could ever do or say or be anything that would keep them from being loved. Parents don't want children to waste even a second worrying about the steadfastness of a parent's love. End of story. And yet, I wonder, is it? Is this really the end of the story? 
Or is there more to this gnawing uncertainty of being loved than the quivering question universally voiced at one time or another between parent and child from time immemorial? Does this question of the limits of love not tap into something deeper? I wonder. In a world in which nearly one out of every two marriages ends in divorce, where children and parents often experience estrangement and rejection, where enmity between people of different backgrounds and orientations and races and creeds in our own country and around the world thwart the promises of brotherly love, love seems to be more uncertain, more limited, more fragile than ever. I won't ask for a show of hands, but I'm certain that mine would not be alone if I ask all those who have ever wondered or felt uncertain or lost at love to raise their hands this morning. The pain, the hurt, the fear, the worry about the limits of love run wide and they run deep. And so chances are that you and I have made it to church looking for a little reassurance, yearning to be told that it's okay, that no matter how messed up and inverted our human love lives are, that there is nevertheless love for the lovelorn. There's one love that you and I can always count on no matter what. And so today, you and I can be particularly glad that we are in a Presbyterian church because all of this love talk, this certainty talk, this assurance talk, this never stop loving you no matter what talk is the kind of talk that we Presbyterians are good at. We Presbyterian Christians are good at this kind of talk because it's the kind of talk that's all about predestination. And predestination is all about our scripture reading from Romans for this morning. Listen and see what you think. In all things, God works for good for those who love God and are called according to God's purpose. For those whom God foreknew, God also predestined to be conformed to the image of God's Son, in order that Christ might be the firstborn within a large family. And those whom God predestined, God also called. And those whom God called, God also justified. And those whom God justified, God also glorified. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our scripture reading from Romans this morning is all about certainty. The certainty of God's never-failing love. And being confident about God's eternal choosing us in love is all about the theological belief, the theological doctrine of predestination. And predestination is all about being Presbyterian. Or as John Calvin, the theological father of the Presbyterian church, liked to put it, predestination is the doctrine of comfort for the believer. So yes, this is a sermon on predestination. That's what the P word is. It's not Phoebe, as you might have thought. 
It's a sermon about the limits of love. It's a sermon about what, if any, limits there are for God's love for all of God's children. It's a response to the plaintive cries of any of God's children who have ever asked their divine parent, but do you, do you still love me? It's also a sermon that Phoebe's baptism in the book of Romans put me up to as well. So before any of you start stampeding to the back door of the church, let me say just a few words about what many of us think that predestination is, that it is not. Predestination is not some perverse doctrine that John Calvin and the Presbyterian Church thought up 500 years ago to torment Christians. Predestination dates back to the Old and New Testaments. It's a story of God choosing and redeeming people, showing them steadfast love and mercy and loving kindness, of sticking by them no matter what, of blessing them so that they might be a blessing to themselves and to others. Predestination carries over in the writings of the early church of St. Augustine and is a belief that is shared to one degree or another throughout most of Christendom. Roman Catholics, Lutherans, Congregationalists, non-free will Baptists, Episcopalians, and yes, Presbyterians. Predestination is also not what the first Presbyterian that I ever met thought it was. I was in Georgia Junior High All-State Chorus at a regional practice at a school two counties over from where I lived. I'd been dropped there by my parents for rehearsal. I was to walk across the street to eat lunch at the McDonald's, and then my parents were to pick me up later that afternoon. But as Providence would have it, at rehearsal, I met two of my closest friends from junior high who had moved away to another school and whom I hadn't seen for over a year. Well, we all wanted to get reacquainted. So at lunchtime, my friends asked their chorus teacher, a Presbyterian, if she would let me ride in the car with them to Pizza Hut and eat lunch with them so that we could renew our friendship. Remember now, this was the bad old days before Facebook. Back then, it was harder to keep up with friends that had moved away. And it was the bad old days before junior high students had cell phones and could call or text parents to get permission. Well, anyway, to my request came the most memorable of responses. Well, John, I really shouldn't take you in my car without your parents' permission because what if God has predestined that we get hit by another car on the way to Pizza Hut and you die in the accident? Your parents are going to sue my pants off. Well, I just have to pray that if God has predestined that we get into an accident on the way to the Pizza Hut and you die, that God in his mercy will have predestined that I die too so that your parents can't sue the pants off of me. Come on, John, hop in the car. Well, even though I'm sure that this woman was a fine Presbyterian and a great Christian, I don't think she got this predestination thing all right. 
Predestination has nothing to do with God having planned out every event, every action, every decision from the very beginning of time. Predestination doesn't have anything to do with you and me helplessly reciting our divinely predetermined lines in the great drama of life. Predestination does not declare that what will be will be because, after all, it's in the cards. God planned it before the foundation of the world. No, you and I do have choices. We make decisions every day, and our decisions for good and not so good in turn make differences in our lives, in our world, and in the way in which God's purposes are fulfilled or deterred. Nor does predestination have anything to do with spiritual arrogance, finger-pointing or name-calling of the Jesus loves me, but Jesus doesn't love you variety. I'm going to heaven, and you're going to burn in hell. I'm the one that God has chosen for glory, and you're the one that is beyond all hope. If that's what predestination was about, then we wouldn't have the wonderful story of a young Presbyterian candidate for ministry. He was being examined for ordination by other ministers and elders at a presbytery meeting. And things were going quite well until one crotchety, mean-spirited old minister put the question of predestination to him in the following way. Son, answer me this. If God has predestined that you are not one of his chosen and you will therefore not enjoy the benefits of heaven, would you be willing to be damned for the glory of God? To which the quick-witted young minister replied, Yes, sir, I would be willing for me and the whole presbytery to go to hell for the glory of God. Predestination doesn't have anything to do with being a tool to determine who's in and who's out, who's loved by God and who's not. Now, it seems to me that the Apostle Paul is suggesting here in Romans and that John Calvin, the father of 79 million modern-day Presbyterian and Reformed Christians worldwide, taught at least on his better days that predestination is really about the breadth and the height and the depth and the certainty of God's love. It's about comfort. It's about steadfastness in our relationship with God. It's about being thankful and grateful and secure that when all is said and done, in those moments when you and I know that we've messed up our relationship with God, when we've done not done the good that we want, but have ended up doing the evil that we did not want, on those occasions when you and I are certain that we have fouled up so bad that even God can't love us still, there's predestination. God's irrevocable choice to be with us and for us and love us no matter what and to work in all things for good. And predestination, as best as I understand it, says simply that when it comes to my relationship with God, your relationship with God, God's love for me and God's love for you, that that relationship, that love, has everything to do with what God does for you and me and not what you and I do in response. Thanks be to God. Because if God's love for me were dependent upon my love for God, if my relationship with God was primarily my responsibility, then I could, I might, and I probably would 
mess it up. Or at the very least, I would always wonder if I might have messed it up. I would be like this sternly rebuked child from the beginning of the sermon, always worrying, fearful, wasting time, pondering the question of if they are loved. Instead of spending all of my time living and acting and enjoying life as one who is loved, beloved of God, child of the covenant. I would be like a dear man I knew in the Baptist church that I grew up in. Poor Mr. Conway, every year, twice a year, our church would schedule a revival. And for Sunday morning and the seven evenings following, a guest evangelist would come in and preach and issue an altar call each night. Brothers and sisters, with every head bowed, with every eye closed, I want those of you who feel Jesus' love and power to come forward and to ask Jesus into your heart and to be baptized. And during the 111st verse of Just As I Am, one or more people would come forward and respond. And each and every revival on usually one of the last two nights Mr. Conway would respond to. Mr. Conway would come down that aisle just a-crying and a-sobbing and proclaim that he was the worst of all sinners. He would loudly confess that he had asked Jesus into his heart and into his life at the last revival. But now he wasn't so sure that he'd gotten that right. Now he was quite convinced that he hadn't been faithful enough and loving enough towards God now he knew that he had messed up and that God didn't love him anymore. But from now on and forevermore, he would strive to do better and act right so that God would love him. And for the eight years I attended Second Baptist Church of College Park, Georgia, I guess I must have seen Mr. Conway come forward and commit his life to Jesus and be rebaptized at least 16 different times. It's amazing that man's skin wasn't permanently puckered from all the baptismal water after being dunked that many times. Because you see, Mr. Conway didn't understand about predestination. He didn't understand that his relationship with God has got a whole lot more to do with what God does than what we may or may not have done. Mr. Conway couldn't understand that God chose him in Christ and there is nothing that can ever separate him from the love of God. And so poor Mr. Conway spent his life of fear, worrying that he wasn't good enough, certain that he hadn't gotten it right, convinced that God didn't or at least might not always love him. And this fear, this worry, this uncertainty about God's love shut him off from being able to concentrate his energy on being the beloved son, the child of God that he already was. So dear friends, for those of you who have ever cried, but do you still love me? Or wonder even now if God really truly unconditionally forever loves you, my invitation is quite simple. 
let go the fear. Let go the worry. Let go any fleeting uncertainty of divine love for you, any sneaking suspicion that there is anything that you can do that will make God stop loving you. Let the good news convict you this day. Let it calm your life and provide you unending comfort for your soul. In all things, God works together for good for those whom God has called according to his purpose. God loves you. Christ died for you so that you can live and love and devote all of your energy on becoming everything and only all that God is calling you to be. Because the truth for Christ followers, for Presbyterians, for you, for me, and Phoebe, today and always, is that we are predestined. God has chosen us in love, in the waters of baptism, from the foundation of the world. And there is simply nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. And those, dear friends, are words to live by. Thanks be to God. Amen.